Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. For today's episode, we're going to feature a live panel discussion hosted by End Beyond to Mark Wildrian O'Day on September 22nd. This lively discussion is hosted by Conserve Global founder and director Andrew Parker. Panelists include Lee Ann Yaman, founder of Our Horn Is Not Medicine, wildlife veterinarian Dr. Dave Cooper, filmmakers, photographers, and National Geographic explorers at large, Derek and Beverly Joubert from Great Plains Conservation, Dr. Jacques Flamand, head of the WWF Isimvelo KZN Wildlife Black Rhino Range Expansion Project. Simon Naylor from NBN Pinder Private Game Reserve, Isaac Tembe of the Africa Foundation, and Elise Serfontaine, founding director of Stop Rhino Poaching. Welcome everyone to this live event on rhino conservation on World Rhino Day 2020. My name is Andrew Parker and I'll be your host today. I have spent my career working to protect rhino and other wildlife in protected areas across Africa. And I think it's tremendously exciting that and beyond have uh, brought together their partners in rhino conservation today to discuss and share their learnings, their successes, experiences, and strategies to protect and raise crucial awareness on rhino conservation in Africa. Rhino conservation generally is, is a complex challenge. And one of our panelists today, Elise Serfontaine, has stated that there's no silver bullet to save a rhino. And the premise of today's talk is that it takes a village to save a rhino. So we will be talking through that and looking at a whole of society approach and how there are so many different facets to rhino conservation. Welcome everyone. I would like to introduce our first panelist, Leanne Yemen. Leanne is the founder and campaign manager of Our Horn Is Not Medicine. Welcome Leanne. Hi Andrew, thank you. And thank you everyone for watching today. Very happy to be here. <laughs> well, beautiful Leanne. Leanne, so I understand that in 2012, you had a very personal encounter with rhino poaching and that this has shaped your, your career trajectory and resulted in the formation of Horn Is Not Medicine. Can you talk, talk us through that a little bit, please? Yeah, I'd love to. So firstly, I started working as a guide with and beyond in 2010. I was based at Ngala Tented Camp uh, the entire time. And um, in 2011, as everyone knows, poaching incursions had picked up quite a bit. We were hearing a lot more shots fired and suspicious tracks we were seeing more of while we were out on drive. And then finally in 2012, January 2012, while I was out on drive with some of my guests, we'd found oh, my first rhino carcass. And it so happened to be a big bull that we had been sitting with for quite a, quite a time the evening before. So it was quite a, obviously quite a shock to my guests, but a, a big shock to me too. Um, and it affected me uh, hugely. So uh, what I did was I started figuring out how I could help. And so I started our Horn Is Not Medicine to make a fundamental change. So because we fell under the Kruger Park, Park regulation, I started raising funds for Sand Parks and as well as the Rhinos Without Borders initiative. So as the years went by, uh, the animals being poached in our area grew considerably. So I wanted to direct funding more to Ngala. So the way to do that was through the Southern African Wildlife College. They were the surveillance unit, aerial surveillance unit, uh, canine unit. 
And um, that's based on the southern part of Ngala. So Ahonism Medicine started to support their work. And yeah, it was it worked really well because we had guests coming from all over the world. We would see the the plane fly over while on game drive, and they'd ask, "Wow, what you know? Why is that plane up there?" And we, I could link it and talk to them about the the reason why we need the plane, or why the dogs would be out training on the property, and it just linked these people that really wanted to help directly to to the source, which was great. So a large part of my campaign was not only to raise funding, but it was to create awareness and give people away to feel helpful like they were doing something and it was really great having people like you know Kevin Pretorius and the the management at Ngala and the field rangers take part and get behind our horns on medicine because you know they were doing things you know we had cycling races together the guys contributed their November moustaches <laughs> to the the cause um, you know whatever we could do is speaking at schools together in the community so yeah everyone in the team was really proud to uh, be re- representing a cause for this beautiful property that we live on wonderful Leanne and I think there's so many lessons from your personal experience you know I think so long the, the, this rhino poaching crisis in the media since 2008, since the, the, the crisis first escalated. Um, there was an initially huge amount of public interest, but people are reading it in the newspapers. They haven't had the personal experience that, that, that you have had. And you know, increasingly, we're seeing media reports that the, the problem is under control, it's being contained, and there seems to be a waning interest in the issue. So I have two questions for you in that regard. Is firstly, is the problem under control? And secondly, how do we get people re-energized about, about rhinos again? Yeah, well, that's always the, the question. But you know what? Donor fatigue is obvious. We can't expect donors to keep supporting conservation forever. Uh, we have to create a sustainable model where conservation cares for itself. You know, last year I resigned from guiding and I started working full-time on our Horners No Medicine through the Southern African Wildlife College, which has now institutionalized our Horners No Medicine. And it's completely changed my fundraising capabilities. Before I was trying to raise from initiative to initiative, which is exhausting. Um, it's tough yeah. because you're always trying to find new ways to get the public's attention. Because the Southern African Wildlife College is an applied learning institution, it supports development of new ideas, teachers best practice, to name a few of these practices, uh, such as using rhino or ear tags instead of notching, and to see how that tag lasts on the rhino's body. You know, how, what's the longevity of that? Is it something we want to move forward with? Training local people uh, to fly for air wing assistance, uh, training field rangers to use the uh, latest technology in uh, ground-to-air communications. Yeah, experimenting with off-leash tracking hounds, for instance, as well. So, you know, we invest, invest a lot of time and money in these projects and donor money in these projects in order to f- inform Africa on methods for best practices moving ahead. So now our supporters aren't just uh, supporting one project, but they're rather supporting like a... a I guess, a mandate to inform um, Africa on what works and what doesn't work, which makes it speaks for itself in a way. And of course, all of this work is done here on Ngala, which obviously has a, a positive impact on the property itself. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it feels, uh, I think, since uh, supporting, you know, and working in this uh, great institution now, it's a, it's a little bit easier than when I was like 
more focused on like how do I get people's attention for this month and that month. Great, Leanne. And from what you're saying, it, it sounds like is as alive as ever and that there's no respite in terms of being able to to relax or, or take your eye off the ball. You know, there's still every need to to continue you know, doing as much as we can to protect rhino. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And like you said, Elise said, there is no silver bullet. Um, I think we now know this. And, you know, um, we have found for our best practice is uh, using aerial surveillance, the canine unit. You have to have to have to have uh, buy-in from the community and the field ranger assets, of course. So all of these things need to work together in order to make this all happened and we are trying we are here trying to give these people the tools that make their work a lot easier on the forefront good luck and thank you so much and it's wonderful to meet somebody who's so driven by their personal convictions thank you thank you if anyone wants to um send any questions they can go on to our instagram page our horn is not medicine and the wildlife college page i can answer anything there if they want our next speakers derek and beverly will be well known to many viewers they are famous for a, a litany, I guess is the right word, of world-class wildlife documentaries. Um, but no, not only are they filmmakers, uh, Derek and Beverly take some amazing photographs. And they are National Geographic Explorers at large and the founders of Great Plains Conservation. And Derek and Beverly will be talking to us today about a really groundbreaking cross-border initiative that I think in so many ways demonstrates what what's possible when even competitors, commercial competitors come together, different governments come together under the purpose of a, of a shared banner. Derek, Beverly, welcome. Great to have you with us Thanks, today. Andrew. Good to see you again. Thank you very much. Can you speak to us a little bit about Rhinos Without Borders and what the, what the original objective was? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were funny enough giving a lecture on big cats and some guy in the back put his hand up and for lesson number one, you always want to avoid the guy in the back with his hand up uh, because there's going to be a question. Um, and finally, we gave him a chance and he said, so this is great, lions, leopards, whatever, but what are you doing about rhinos? And it was 2008, 2009, and we said, look, surely somebody else has got that. And of course, lots of people have got it. So there's fantastic work going on across all of the national parks and all of the rhino game reserves, even private land across South Africa in particular, but then obviously up in East Africa. So we didn't quite know um, what meaningful role we could play, except when we started talking to the Botswana authorities and we realized that um, the national ambition in Botswana was to get to a certain level of rhinos and we were well short of that. And so the next step was I started looking around because I didn't want it to be just us or just Great Plains. Started looking around for partners. And very early on, I, I had a cup of tea with Joss Kent, CEO of Van Beyond. And uh, we cooked up a plan and that was it. And the whole initiative really was to find rhinos that were seriously under threat in areas where they were really either being poached or about to be poached and then remove them as quickly as possible, fly them 2,000 kilometers across, 2,500 kilometers across the, the uh, subcontinent, and then release them into secret locations up in the in Botswana, Okabango area. And of course, what was really interesting in this project was, first of all, it was a partnership with 
and beyond, and, and they're competitors, Great Plains. So we were able to put any competitiveness aside and say, let's work on this together. And it was a private-public partnership when we went to the Botswana government and said, we need help in this. And one component of that that really worked out well for us was the, um, the learning of or the ability to charter some very big military assets. And so we were able to use Botswana Defence Force planes to come in and pick up these animals and move them across. What we really wanted to do was use it, first of all, as conservation, but also as science. And so we brought Botswana vets down. Uh, the first uh, couple of batches came out of Pinda, actually. And so through this, the Botswana vets got real hands-on experience in being tutored by Dave Cooper and Marcus Hoffman and some of the others that are just experts in moving rhinos, whereas in Botswana, we just didn't have the turnover to become experts. And then, of course, one of the great things that came out of this was stress testing. So again, under Dave and a couple of other people, taking blood samples all the way through indicated that there's far less stress on an animal like a rhino if you, as we did in this, try something different, capture the rhino, put it into a container, fly it across rather than drive it, various unloading, offloading, passport controls and so on, and then hot release the animal. And so you just minimize the stress. So it's been very, very successful and there have been at least 50 babies born. In the 60s, Dr. Ian Player, you know, brought back rhinos. I mean, already then there was a problem. And if it wasn't for the attention that he put onto rhinos and South Africa wouldn't have had the abundance of rhinos. And that's why I believe, you know, a lot of the uh, poaching in South Africa was targeted because they had the largest population right through Africa. But as we heard from Leanne, how are we going to stop the poaching? Uh, it's not only about let us relocate them to a secure location, but we really have to change um, it's got to be a mindset change in so many ways. And the mindset change has to be global. It's not only the mindset of those that are using the horn as the end product. It really has to be everybody involved in the poaching. So that's African, Asian, Western, um, right through. And we also have to understand that it is morally incorrect to give a, a sick person that might be, um, you know, might be poverty stricken at the same time to say, well, this is going to save your life. And yet it's not going to do a thing. Um, it really is keratin, as we all know. And uh, so like our fingernails. So we have to get to that mindset is how do we stop the trade? And so a lot of what we're doing through uh, Rhinos Without Borders is not only relocating these rhinos to safe areas and then protecting them for the future, but we're also creating this awareness campaign. And the awareness campaign is, you know, reaching a larger global audience and um, hopefully also reaching uh, the decision makers. The decision makers being the individual uh, countries, individual governments around the world to stop the trade because if we allow the trade in rhino horn, as we know, that's going to escalate the illegal trade at the same time. And then uh, to stop the trade and the mindset that rhino horn is going to be a substance that is going to either give you incredible um, power to through the totem of the rhino, but that it's no longer, you know, sustainable, first of all, to Africa, 
a rhino alive for 35 years will bring more safari economy into a country than one dead rhino and it's gone forever. Yeah, absolutely. And, and well said, uh, Beverly. And I think that just demonstrates the complexity of this problem that we, you know, it's a global problem effectively. Um, and it requires a, a, a global solution. And I think, you know, it's it's easy to think of a major translocation as, as, as a project in its own right, given everything that goes into that and moving rhino, you know, over 2000 kilometers. But, but it sounds like that that's just the beginning and that the, the hard work really starts after that to, to keep those rhinos safe and to reduce the pressures on those rhinos. So what, what is next for Rhinos Without Borders? What is the next step? Well, obviously we do, as you rightly say, we've got to protect these rhinos, just make sure that they are safe. Um, I always view almost all conservation, but in particular rhino conservation, as two stages. You look down at your feet, so you, you make sure that the assets that you've got are safe. And the next is to look at the horizon. And the horizon for rhinos and for us, ironically, lies within our relationship with communities. So as we engage more and more with communities and people who live closest to the rhinos, that is our solution. That's our future. And, and for us in particular, it's the woman of Africa in these, in these communities because I think that uh, they've been excluded just by the fact that they're women, but communities have been excluded from the conservation discussion and conversation. And so more and more, if we want to future-proof anything in Africa, we have to engage with communities at that horizon and make sure that they become ambassadors. And basically, the, the premise of that is, as Beverly alluded to, that these are valuable animals alive and not dead. But every time an animal like a rhino is poached, it's theft from those communities. And I think that's a premise that we certainly find in, in association with Rhinos Without Borders uh, that's resonating very, very strongly with the communities we deal with. We're also talking about moving rhinos up, not just on this one route from South Africa to Botswana, but also in other parts of the, of the um, continent. And hence, rhinos without borders. It's, it's not just one border, it's multiple borders. And so we're looking inside of Zimbabwe, we're looking in East Africa as well. So we're going to be expanding this program to wherever we need it. I'm reminded of a call that I took. I was actually in the Maasai Mara, and my phone rang. And it was from somebody up in Zingila, Marcus, that we'd, um, we'd been talking to already. And he called me, and he was almost in tears. And he said, Derek, you have to come and get these rhinos now. And in the background, I could hear gunshots. That evening, they shot nine of his rhinos, and I think there were 16 left. And uh, with Les and beyond, and his team, Ron Tracy, we swept in there, and we removed the 16 rhinos. And so I think that that's looking down at your feet. There's an interve emergency intervention that has to happen. There's securing those things and then securing the future. Fantastic, Derek. Thank you. And thank you, Beverly. And I think, you know, what's clear is that Rhinos Without Borders, you know, doesn't only talk to political borders, but, but it sounds like protected area borders as well, is that, that rhinos to persist, we need to be thinking beyond the boundaries and borders of, of protected areas as well. And I think that's such an important point to make. Thank you both very much. Wonderful to have you. There is a question. This is from Albert van Eden. Just a question for Derek and Beverly regarding the black and white rhino that was introduced to the Okavango. How are these reintroduced populations?
conditions doing? And has the black rhino in the Delta been removed to a safer location in Botswana due to security concerns? Yeah, okay, I can talk to that. I think that the first black rhino that we introduced was somewhere around 2002, 2003, and they've been coming in systematically since then. In fact, one rather famous one decided that uh, living in Wangi was no longer fun and walked across the border. And so there have been black rhinos both introduced, overlooked when we originally, and we were part of the team that originally took all the rhinos out of the Okavango and put them in safe houses. Poaching has escalated everywhere within the Southern African area. Probably as wildlife numbers diminish in other places, poaching will follow to where there are wildlife numbers. And so there has been a poaching surge in, in, in Southern Zambia, Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Namibia. And so as a result, government decided to remove the black rhinos they could find, leaving the whites, but remove the black rhinos out of the Okavango. And that program is underway now. I'm not sure it's entirely complete, but a whole lot of rhinos have been removed. Andrew, I just wanted to say that both black and white rhinos, obviously the stakes are much higher with black rhinos, only because of the numbers. But I think that what we're dealing with here collectively, all of the, all of the speakers, you, everybody involved in rhino conservation, is that we're dealing with an iconic and very symbolic uh, couple of species in Africa. And that it's almost like the last um, stand. And that if we let rhinos go, what's next? And so for me, it's not saving one rhino at a time or moving one black rhino out. It's what's next. If we don't hold the ground here, we lose too much. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's exactly what Derek and I saw when we started the Big Cat Initiative at National Geographic, and that's probably 12 years ago, is many said, well, why do you only care about predators? Well, of course, um, there were an iconic species that represented everything. And so if we were protecting the land for lions, leopards, and cheetah, we were protecting it already for rhinos, elephants, and every other species. And so I think that it's really important if you focus on one creature, you've got to protect the land for that animal. And that's really what is happening right now with rhinos, or the focus that rhinos are getting is how do we protect them for the future. But I think um, what has become so evident over a four-year period with Rhinos Without Borders and the wonderful partnership with all hands on deck from governments, from uh, you know people on the ground, from two different uh, tour operators, and then opening it up to agents around the world because they're all bringing their clientele you know, to various parts of Africa and how they started supporting. So I think we do have to acknowledge that it's really uh, your title of taking a village. I mean, this really has taken a village with everybody. And on the day when you're moving a rhino, there's about a thousand people. You've got a military making sure that the security is on track and these, these rhinos aren't going to have a major situation with a roadblock or anything like that. So all of that is key. But I see it as a rescuing of rhinos, so it's a story of hope. And I think around the world, we see um, and listen to the environment is being abused, diminished, uh, animals are going extinct. Uh, what can we do? And everybody goes, well, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything. And I think um, if we can use Rhinos Without Borders as a wonderful example, that it just starts with the idea and the discussions. And then that passion drives it forward and we can all make a difference. And I think that's really, uh, the world is in that place 
We all need to take action. Everybody can take part, even if it's just donating so that we can keep these rhinos safe and then continue to move one rhino is 45,000 US dollars because they're airlifted about the security and about their own safety and, and then protected for three years. So I think if our audience bears that in mind, that everybody can get involved and really great appreciation to all those that have already assisted and to and beyond and great thanks for this wonderful partnership. I will just end with Andrew. Um, I know we've got time constraints here, but there were times working with Dave and Simon and various other people, Ron Tracy, Les, in the dark, pushing and shoving these rhinos. And I remember sitting back one, one day and, and just looking at the shafts of light coming through the rhino legs as everybody was giving their all to saving one rhino. And I just thought, you know, we... It's not so much the rhino that we're saving, but we're saving our own souls. That's yeah, that's a, a lovely point to close on, Derek. Thank you. And thank you, Beverly. And I love the thought of rhinos being ambassadors for wildlife in general and the thought that if we can save rhino, everything is possible. So therefore, we have to save rhino. So thank, thank you very much for, for some great insight. Thank you very much. Our next speaker... I guess could be described as a doyen of rhino conservation in, in South Africa. His name has already been mentioned by Beverly and Derek, Dr. Dave Cooper. Dave is a highly experienced wildlife vet. He's been with Ezenvelo KZN Wildlife for uh, probably 30 years, close on 30 years, 25 years since 1995, has translocated, Dave, you'll need to correct me, 2,000 white rhino, 500 black rhino, arguably the most experienced wildlife vet globally when it comes to translocation and mobilization capture of rhino. It's absolutely wonderful to, to have you here with us today, Dave. Welcome. I feel privileged. Thank you very much, Andrew. Great, Dave. So we've just heard some really good insight into a successful translocation from, from Beverly and Derek. Talk to us a little bit more about translocations as a strategy to save and conserve rhinos. Well, I think one must remember that, you know, in the past, it, it was a very positive move and, and translocation has come a long way in terms of improvements into techniques and into equipment and everything, which has made it a routine and a very safe procedure. And in the past, it was all about creating new populations, opening up habitat for rhino, etc. It was wonderful to be part of that whole experience. And things changed quite dramatically with the upsurge of poaching from 2012, there was definitely a shift towards a more strategic translocation process where rhino were now being moved to save them. They were being moved from, from more vulnerable areas into areas of safekeeping. Um, instead of establishing new populations, we were actually losing existing populations. And we lost rhino habitat as a result. And it's ongoing. So I can't remember in terms of white rhino when we did a normal translocation to create a new population. The opposite can be said for black rhino, which is, which is great, and it's at least something positive that I look forward to every year. Black rhino are survivors, and, and they, in spite of all the poaching, have not come off as, as badly as the, black, as the white rhino, and there are still excess rhino through breeding. And um, you'll hear a bit more about it through Dr. Pramar, but the black rhino range expansion has been enormously successful. And I'm very proud to have been part of that whole process because, as I said, in all this gloom, we've got this positive uh, events that are happening where we're establishing new black rhino populations. 
Thank you, Dave. I think for, for many people involved in conservation at the moment, you know, this poaching crisis is the first major crisis of its kind that the, the sector and, and people coming into the sector have encountered. Being at the, the forefront of rhino conservation and witnessed the ebb and flow from the good news to the bad news, can you share with us just some personal insights how, how you've been impacted by this ebb and flow? Well, I think firstly, Andrew, as you rightly said, it was unprecedented. It wasn't something that we were expecting. And when you're used to seeing the odd poaching case every year, it, it doesn't, doesn't hit you so hard. But when, the, when it started escalating, my life literally changed. Where I was used to traveling with a, a drug box and a dart gun as my essential equipment, now suddenly I had to include a metal detector and forensic and I was checking my phone every morning to make sure that, that there hadn't been an incident the night before and was I going to be called that day. And it took an enormous, not just a physical drain, it was a mental, emotional drain on myself. It took me a while to recognize it because, you know, you uh, post-traumatic stress is not something that usually is recognized by the person who's suffering from it. If you've got a decent wife, though, they, they give you a, a good, good hard slap around the face every now and again. Say, listen, catch a wake-up, pull yourself together. I wasn't sleeping well. Um, I was bad-tempered, I, I had no patience, uh, I couldn't speak to people about things, and I shed many a tear. And it was sort of later on that I, I realized, that, hang on, I've got some good friends who, who understand what's happening. And um, I was able to speak to them, uh, and it, it shared the load a bit. And I've had a bit of relief in the last four years uh, because I've got an assistant, and it's made an enormous difference, not just because you can share things, but you can also share the load. It has taken an enormous toll, and it's not just on us as veterinarians, um, witnessing you know, dead animals when you're supposed to be saving animals, uh, you can see what happens to the ranger staff because they feel it just as much as you do. And I think some of the hardest things that I've ever had to do more recently is the fact that in the past, euthanizing a rhino was a major thing. It, it happened very seldom. And yet there's nothing worse than having to pick up a rifle and shoot the very animal that you spent your career trying to save. And we've had to do that more and more frequently. It's been a, it's been tough. No, I can I can only ima imagine, Dave. And I think you know what's what's quite telling in, in this situation is that, I mean, by way of comparison, if you look at, for instance, military tours that the American soldiers do to a place like Afghanistan, you know, they do a six month tour and then they rotate it and they have six months off. For the conservationists at the front line of combating poaching, it's been twelve years and it's seven days a week, twenty four hours a day. You know, it's it's it just doesn't stop. Huge respect for, for all that you've done, Dave, and uh, thank you very much. And keep up the good work, and, and please thank your wife from us. <laughs> it's been wonderful to be part of us, and I just want to end on a positive note because things like Rhino Without Borders and these kind of initiatives are really what keeps us buoyed and takes us through those hard times. So thanks, Derek and Beverly. You expressed a lot of my personal sentiments. All right, so from one uh, highly experienced and, and, and very competent wildlife vet to another, our next speaker is the leader of the WWF and Isambelo KZN Wildlife Black Rhino Range Expansion Project. And over his career, Jacques has had many, many thousands, I guess, rhino under your care. Jacques, welcome. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. Talk us through the Black Rhino Range Expansion Project, its genesis and where it's come from and, and where it is at the moment. Well, the Black Rhino Range Expansion Project was born out of the necessity to get our black rhino populations to grow faster. There was a decline in the growth rates of black rhino throughout South Africa, actually, but particularly in KZN. 
So WWF and KZN Wildlife decided to enter into a partnership to start this project. And that started in 2003. And the whole point of the project was to get the numbers of black rhino to go up. Now, the, the, the decline in growth rate probably came because there was no space or not enough space in the reserves available. And there was no money to buy land for rhinos to expand, expand our conservation area network. So uh, we hit on the idea of entering into partnership with landowners who were willing to participate in this project. Bear in mind that in 2003, there was very little poaching going on. So it was easy to find landowners willing to participate. And in fact, they were queuing at my door, you know, wanting black rhino. So in 2004, we released our first batch and that was on Pinda, a and beyond reserve. And we chose that one because their security was good. They had the capacity to monitor the rhinos after release and to protect them in the years going forward. And since that release in 2004, we've released 13 other uh, new populations of black rhino. And by moving in excess of 210 black rhino. And it's, it's I believe, made a real difference to black rhino numbers in KZN and in South Africa. The uh, partnership it was expanded to Eastern Cape Parks as well um, during the life of the project. And so we've been able to move all these rhino to reserves in South Africa, private reserves in South Africa, and also one in Malawi. We, we can see that the numbers of black rhino, not only on black rhino range expansion project sites, but also in the KZN Wildlife and Eastern Cape Parks reserves have increased immeasurably because of A, relieving pressure on those reserves and B, starting new populations on new reserves. As an example, KZN had never had 500 black rhino, and now it's got more than that. You know, we, we believe it's definitely partly, partly due to the Black Rhino Range Expansion Project. And I think it's um, yeah, a testimony to some firm commitment. And just listening to what you've been saying and, and uh, Derek and Beverly, it seems like partnerships are critical to ensure successful outcomes for rhinos. And there seems to be a growing awareness around the importance of these partnerships. Would you say that the Black Rhino Range Expansion Project, is, is its success is, is founded on, on partnerships, both with, you know, within government, with private landowners, with communities? How important are partnerships in this? Absolutely. Without partnerships, we wouldn't be able to do what we have done. You know, we rely on landowners who are passionate, first of all, who hopefully have enough money to protect these black rhino in a sustainable way into the future. And without those partnerships, we never would have been able to do that. So, you know, partnerships are key to the whole operation. Wonderful, Jacques. It's been great talking to you. And thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jacques, and keep up the, the good work. Look, looking forward to seeing more black rhino moving northwards up in Africa. There will be. <laughs> thank you. It's been a pleasure. So our next is a conservation manager at the front line of keeping rhino secure. Uh, Simon Naylor is the reserve manager of and beyond Pinda Private Game Reserve, which we've heard mentioned already by several speakers. And I think it's important to note that Pinda really is situated at the epicenter of South Africa's rhino poaching crisis. Graphically, it's, it's sandwiched between KwaZulu-Natal reserves and the Kruger National Park, and yet it's been highly successful in protecting its rhino. Really interested to hear from Simon how, how he's managed to do that. So, Simon, I'm going to put you on the spot. And really, if you can explain to us under 
you know, conditions where so many people are finding it so challenging to protect rhino. What have you done differently or what have you done to keep your rhino safe? Hi, Andrew. And, and yeah, thanks. It's great to be involved in this, this rhino, uh, rhino Day um, webinar. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. You know, we haven't been spared the, the poaching. We lost our first rhino in 2011. And I must be honest, all I can say is that it's, it's taken a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of effort, and a lot of money to secure the rhinos that we have here. What it comes down to is basically a multi-pronged approach or a layer of initiatives that sort of all add up to one sort of one form of protection. There's no silver bullet. One of the big things that, that we've had to do is obviously militarize our strategy. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with, with very organized criminal syndicates. I mean, these are guys that obviously have all the advantage, you know, when they're planning uh, a sort of a poaching operation, they have time to strategize and, and do their homework. So it's, it's, you've got to have a counterinsurgency strategy against this. But saying that, you know, we, we've, we've focused obviously on, on protecting rhinos, keeping them alive. It's the first thing. And the first layer of defense, it's been mentioned here before, is, is the communities. We, we're very fortunate that we've, over the years, built up a great relationship with all our communities surrounding the park. And, and, and so we focus a lot on awareness and education and the buy-in of our communities into the role that rhinos, not just rhinos, but, but all wildlife plays in, in, uh, in their lives and, and creating a positive attitude towards the park. So that's the, the very first thing. So that creates a bit of a buffer and, and a layer. Unfortunately, uh, there are elements in the community targeted by these organized criminal syndicates. And I, and I think it's really just because the value of this horn is so high. And so you require you do require sort of a defense within your within your boundary, within your park. And the, that that defense is boots on the ground. That's your field rangers. I mean, we've had to double our field ranger force uh, since 2011. Anyone that has rhinos or protects rhinos will attest to to having to to increase their field range of force, you've got to have you know well-equipped field rangers, uh, motivated field rangers. You've got to have field rangers that are uh, well trained as well, you know. And that all of that has comes at a cost. So we've had to sort of really focus on on training and equipment. And so our field rangers have actually almost become soldiers. You know, we before 2011, yes, they were armed, but never having to sort of deal with with armed poachers. So training that's that's been very important. We've had to secure our communications, improve our communications amongst the field range of force. We've had to bring in uh, canine units, aerial surveillance. Unfortunately, you know, these criminal syndicates, they target our own staff internally and communities as well. They, Because of the value of the horn, they're prepared to pay for people to become involved in the sort of racket or the poaching operation. So we've had to try and mitigate that internal threat as well. So we've implemented very strict uh, visitor controls, staff visitor uh, access controls, and provide uh, rewards as well for information. And I think a lot of people that get targeted, they they get coerced into becoming involved because of the money that gets uh, offered to them. And so, so we've just had to sort of provide an alternative, you know, for people that want to give information and make sure that those that do give information are, are protected through anonymity. So we've had to develop a reward system, which has been very uh, successful. You know, in the last four or five years, we've implemented a integrity sort of testing as well amongst our own staff, again, to just de uh, deter, you know, our own staff from wanting to become involved in, in, in uh, illegal activities. Unfortunately, most poaching that takes place 
uh, has insider information of some sort or level. Um, so, so that's the strategy that you have to target as well. The last sort of line of defense uh, and something that we've introduced recently, which I know a lot of parks have, have started doing uh, in recent times, is dehorning. You know, any poacher that wants to enter the park has to weigh up that risk reward. The reward obviously being the, the, the horn. Uh, and that reward is is very high at the moment. The demand is is still very high and the value of the horn is still very high. And the risk is obviously being caught, being prosecuted or at worst being shot and killed. Uh, we've had a number of incidents where we've had exchanges with, with poachers as well. So you have to put that risk reward in your favor. And so anything that you do, you've got you've to make that risk very high. And so taking the horn off by dehorning changes the, the game substantially. You know, you, you're removing that incentive for, for poachers to want to come in. You know, if you can keep the horn short, which takes a lot of effort and, and, and obviously resources as well, you, you change the game a lot and, and you put the gods in your favor. So, so, I mean, that's just a number of initiatives that we've done. But yeah, we haven't been spared as well, but our, our losses have been quite small. Great, Simon. Thank you. And I think just in the interest of time, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot for a very short answer and the, the next question. And that is, you mentioned the risk-reward ratio. And, and on both ends, the ec economics are stacked against conservation in some respects, in that the value of the horn is very high, and yet protecting rhino is very high. What risk is there of simple economics driving rhino to extinction? <sighs> Yeah, it's a good question. I think at the moment there is a risk. We want to be positive and you know and say that there 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 isn't. I mean, white rhino numbers are in decline. I mean, that's the reality, and that's due to the demand for the horn. And so, it's becoming increasingly harder for both state and private that protect rhino to to conserve them, to keep them alive. You know, the the value of the horn is 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 going up, and and as as f there are fewer rhino. Uh, the pressure on those remaining sort of areas with rhino is increasing all the time. So it's it's very real. Um, I think we mustn't uh, delude ourselves that it 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 they won't they can't be extinct. But obviously, I think all of us that are involved in rhino conservation, as hard as it is, we we you know we have a lot of really really bad days, you know. But we have to remain positive and do everything that we can to protect the last remaining rhinos that we have. Yeah, thank you, Simon. And and by all accounts, it sounds like you and your team have been doing a superb job. So keep it up and yeah, look after those pachyderms. Thank you, Simon. Our next speaker is somebody who's going to bring quite a different perspective on, onto proceedings. Isaac Timber is from the Africa Foundation, which is NBON's community development partner. I believe the two organizations have been working together for 30 years. Isaac is, is head of uh, methodology, monitoring and evaluation. And we've heard from a number of prior speakers that communities are the first line of defense. Isaac, talk to us about this. You know, Talk to us about the role that communities play in protecting and conserving rhino. Um, yeah, well, thanks, Andrew. Thank you for having me. The community does form a, a very formidable first line of defense in the protection of the rhino. And the role they play is a very critical one because just listening to the previous speakers, you know, whether we talk about the Black Rhino Range Expansion Project or the relocation of, uh, of the rhino to Botswana, one of the most critical areas that we are all at least in agreement of is that uh, the buy-in from the community is absolutely critical. 
And what we have seen uh, over the years is that working with the communities have actually ensured that you're bringing a, a, a critical element of protection to the rhino in particular, but in general to the, to the, to the wildlife. Our, our relationship with the community has actually been the most uh, biggest asset that we have. And we've been working on this for, for many, many years. Uh, if we talk about the theme of the discussion today being it takes a village, to save the rhino. The village is exactly where we've been very active in, you know, in working with the people, making sure that um, at the schools, taking all the young children to, to the game reserve, talking about conservation, the importance of all of that. It indeed has actually been an area of focus for us because we just, we, we knew much earlier for us to be involved in this space on a sustainable level, we actually have to create a very strong working relationship with the communities. And I think it's, it has paid off. Some of the success stories that uh, we have, um, the, most of the success that we have actually been talking about, uh, the previous speakers have been talking about, are, are partly as a result of the relationship that we've built um, with the communities. As we're talking about, Beverly and Derek were talking about the relocation of Rhino to Botswana. Uh, as soon as um, that relocation took place, we actually had to start a very strong concerted effort to actually try and bring the communities around the delta on board just before the um the lockdown i was uh, i was in botswana uh, working with the communities in that in that region to try and see how we can actually bring them on board to to, to make sure that they are part and parcel of the conservation of, of the rhino in particular but generally speaking on of the conservation so there's a big role that the communities are playing. Uh, whistleblowers are based there. Um, when you talk, you know, the village we're talking about that we depend on to, to build that, that, that line of defense is in the community. So uh, the community is absolutely critical in, in the conservation space. Um, without, the conserva without the community or that good relationship with the communities, we know that the challenge is always going to be bigger. And therefore, we would need to actually double our effort in ensuring that the communities actually largely have a good buy-in um, in what we're trying to do in, 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 in saving the right. Great, Isaac. Thank you. And I guess, um, again, I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you the million-dollar question. If local communities determine, in many ways, the social legitimacy of poaching, how do you get communities to buy into rhino conservation when historically there have been little transfer of benefits and communities have often been marginalized. How do you secure that buy-in of communities? Well, I, I think what we've done uh, over the years is that with, with our partnership with, uh, with then Beyond Lodges, what we have actually done is connect a direct link between rhino conservation or conservation in general with the projects that are actually taking place in the community, whether it be your job created at the lodge as a result of the guests that actually come from overseas to have a good time and, and see the rhinos as part of the wildlife experience. And because of that, when the guests actually get to the lodge, we actually you know, have an opportunity to talk to them and show them the community outside and actually share with them what the, what the long-term view of the communities are. And the guests actually take interest in, in that and help us to raise funds and projects get developed. We've been able to send a, a number of students to, to universities because of the bursary that, um, that is largely supported by the founders that actually came through the, through the lodges. So there is a very clear demonstrable uh, benefit to the community that linked directly back to the rhino in particular, but in generally to wildlife conservation. That is how the minds are changing. People actually want to see tangible benefit. People want to be recognized 
uh, as neighbors. And once you are able to do all of these things collectively um, or accumulatively, then you actually start getting a lot of mindset change and the paradigm shift in, in time in, in believing that working together, we can uh, do a lot more in, in conserving the rhino, but at the same time, uh, ensuring that the uh, community can develop. Wonderful, Isaac. Thank you. And I think the work that you're doing, it's often not widely acknowledged, but it, it, it is increasingly becoming the most important aspect of conservation in Africa and building a constituency for conservation amongst local communities. So I can only applaud the work that you're doing with and beyond. And thank you very much for, for your time today. Isaac, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much. Hello, Elise. How are you? Good. Thanks, Andy. How are you doing? Good, good. Elise is the founder and managing director of StopRhinoPoaching.com. Elise, I guess like Leanne, is a person driven by fierce personal convictions, has been helping practitioners at the forefront of the fight against poaching. And I think importantly, Elise has been taking care of the people who take care of the rhino. And I think there's a huge number of, of practitioners out there who would be in a far worse situation without your intervention, Elise. So Wonderful privilege to have, have you with us today. Thanks, Andy. It's lovely to be here. Talk to us about the current rhino poaching situation. Leanne and I spoke a little bit about, is the poaching problem resolved? Is it still a crisis? What is happening in the demand state? And you know, especially within the context of the evolution of the crisis and increasing links to organized crime. So Andy, yeah, I'm speaking to what Leanne was saying and what you were speaking about earlier. Over the years, there's been an upsurge in, in demand from the user countries, fueled by an increase in wealth and the use of horn as a status symbol. Any effect of the pandemic on the current demand remains to be seen. Although poaching has picked up again, as soon as there were whisperings of international travel opening up in South Africa. So there have been incidents happening over the last couple of days over even the last two weeks or so. The evolution of poaching here is that where many years back poaching was very much more an infrequent or opportunistic event, it's now become big business within the realm of organized crime. It's enabled by corruption. It's driven by well-connected syndicate bosses linking multinational trafficking networks. And for your modern-day poacher, killing rhinos has become a profession. Yes, it still attracts impoverished individuals, but more and more, speaking to what Simon was saying, we're seeing well-orchestrated insider involvement, which could be something as simple as maybe turning a blind eye to assisting in some other way to actually pulling the trigger themselves. So the, here we are looking at people who have jobs and in some cases well-paying jobs that are also getting involved. And worryingly, we've also seen individuals involved in other organized um, and aggressive crimes, such as vehicle hijackings and cash in transit heists, turn to poaching because of that low risk, high reward ratio. So the evolving organized crime element is very difficult to disrupt, let alone dismantle, which is what makes on poaching so hard to combat. Yeah, and, and that is a, it's, it's a worrying trend that, that, that you've just outlined there. And I would imagine you know, where rhinos are present, these criminal organizations become increasingly embedded and placing all rhino populations at risk. So at least looking at the suite of, of, of different reserves where rhinos are present and all the, the multitude of needs across both public and private sector reserves, how do you choose projects to, to invest in and, and support through, through Stop Rhino Poaching? So we, Andy, we're really selective of where we get involved. Also very much because we're a small organization, we're not a big NGO. 
And we support projects where we can have maximum impact for larger viable populations on reserves with a strong conservation ethic. Um, reserves who have a long-term vision where the commitment to see this whole poaching crisis through is very, very evident. We look at what are those areas already putting in place themselves? Are they sharing information? Are they working closely with reserves in their area? Um, are they working with the reserves further afield within their province, um, maybe even nationally? Um, we have a look at their proven track record for delivering on past projects. Very importantly, what's their understanding of the evolving threat? Are they keeping up to date with new trends and tactics? We'll have a look at their request. Is it current best practice? Is it sustainable? Um, especially uh, when one is making big investments, for example, into technology. How's that how is that technology going to be maintained? How is it going to be upgraded through its life cycle? And then also, we're very fortunate. We are able to drive a lot of projects ourselves. So we've got a very wide trust network. Um, we're exposed to the realities as well as the real requirements out there. And we're in a position to facilitate the sharing of lessons learned and to take what's working in some areas and then teach that to other areas. Yeah, so, so that's, that's pretty much how we cho choose the areas that, that we support. What you're saying really speaks to the concept of it takes a village to save a rhino in that people that can cooperate, share information, share knowledge, skills, lessons learned are the ones that are most likely to be successful and that mm -hmm. community of practice is, is really a strong component of an effective strategy to save Rhino. Yeah, very, very much so. Great. Well, thank you so much, Elise. So Elise was our last speaker. So we are moving on to questions. I think what is evident from everything we've heard today is that this is a complex challenge. There is no silver bullet. It requires a level of dedication and commitment by conservationists at the front line that is, quite frankly, unheralded. It's been 12 long years for the conservation sector. And in the absence of the efforts from people that we, the likes of which we've spoken to today, our rhino in South Africa and elsewhere in Africa would be in a far worse position. So a huge thank you to all the panelists, not only for being here today, but for your sterling and astounding work, quite frankly, in, in keeping Africa's rhino safe. Thank you. So we have a question for Dr. Jacques. Does the Black Rhino range expansion project focus on both subspecies of Black Rhino in South Africa? Well, the answer is no. We concentrate on Diceris bicornis minor, which is the, the uh, subspecies that's found in the southeastern corner of South Africa. Well, the whole eastern side of South Africa. And uh, the reason for that is that our, our initial concern was the decline in the growth rate of the populations of that subspecies initially. A similar project for, for the uh, Bicornus Bicornus subspecies would be good. You know, I, I, I don't have any at my in my hands to uh, distribute as I do the miners. A similar project would be very good for both subspecies, obviously. Thank you, Jacques. We have a, a question from Vyashnavi Harishund. Dr. Cooper and Dr. Flamont, what advice do you have for aspiring wildlife veterinarians in terms of getting into the specialization? What did you wish you had known as a student? Dave, start with you. Well, I think the most important is to catch the reality of the situation. It is actually a very small field. There's not many opportunities. And I think there's also a big difference between formal conservation and the private sector as well. Both Jacques and I have been very fortunate in having worked for the formal conservation sector because 
it's generally non-commercial and it's just for conservation and nothing else. But I think first prize is to get a hold of a wildlife veterinarian. And I've certainly spent a lot of time with students over the years and um, spend some time with them and, and discuss it and talk, talk to it. And, and then opportunities will come. So it, it's not something that's just a formality. You can't just go and do an extra degree training and then expect to find an opportunity. But it's something you're going to have to work at and look, and, and look hard for. Thank you, Dave. Jacques, any additional thoughts? I'd agree with what Mike says. So in, in, in many ways, luck is an important element. You know, there's got to be an opening while you're around, as it were. You know, in my case, I, I know I always wanted to work with wildlife, even before I became a vet. And, and for me, I, I was very lucky in that I could marry both aspirations, being a vet and a wildlife one with that. So, yes. Um, I, I think Dave is quite right. We were both in the formal conservation sector. Uh, there are many private wildlife veterinarians now, and, and they keep popping up because, you know, the game industry has become quite a business nowadays, you know, recognized part of agriculture. Of course, uh, the, the bottom's fallen out of many of the valuable species that were being farmed, as it were, for, for trophies or whatever. So... Uh, Probably less openings at the moment, but it could pick up again. Great. Thank you, Jacques. Thank you. Laurel Neem, given all the issues raised, what are the ways someone from another country can do to help in a substantive way? Sure, that's a question that I could channel to anybody. I see Derek and Beverly are back with us, so I'm going to channel it to them. Well, look, I think that uh, the time has passed where we can choose anywhere in the country, whether we're conservationists or not, for the... Uh, for the success and the future of the planet, we all have to be conservationists. So I would say, no matter what country you're in, form together, make sure that your voice is heard, become a conservationist, get in behind the issues that you've heard everybody talk about today. There really is this massive difference between saying nothing and saying something. And so you have to have a voice and you have to speak out. And sometimes that means gathering in a small community and then making sure that the representative that you have access to hears and knows what you're feeling about the export or import of rhino horn or any of these conservation matters. So I'd say that it starts with the voice. So that's the cheapest thing. Thank you, Derek. And I think that's really encouraging because often people don't have large amounts of money to contribute, you know, even though funding is, is often, you know, in short supply, but beyond funding, Making your voice heard and being an advocate for conservation is, is equally important. Yeah, Andrew, I'll just add to that. I think that there are three basic issues with all conservation. That's necessity, and we know that communities that are on the breadline need to survive. And so we all need to do whatever we can about suppressing poverty and raising wealth. That goes a long way. The second is, is ignorance, and the third is greed. So ignorance we can do a lot about. If everybody hangs on to the facts, not the stuff that you hear in the media necessarily, but spreads the facts, spreads the knowledge, we can erode ignorance. And then, of course, greed, you know, that's a really tough one to find. But at least we can yeah. do things to it. We have a question from Alejandra Rodriguez. Simon, this is for you. How many do you relocate a year? And how has coronavirus affected the operations? I assume the relocation operations. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, it's a, it's it, there's no exact figure, um, but what I can say is is over the years the number of animals that have been re relocated is is dwindling, is coming down, and that's for a number of reasons. I think, you know, the main one is that rhinos are you know becoming a very much a liability, certainly in South Africa. Ten years ago, they were sort of a species that were quite sought after, certainly in the private sort of reserve space. And that's where most of our, our sort of rhinos were were being relocated, you know, other than sort of big, big projects like, you know, Rhinos Without Borders. We've we've moved a lot of rhinos and donated a lot of rhinos from Pinda. Yeah, it's come down to literally a handful. And, and I, 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 I suspect and, and fear that, you know, that that number will 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 drop even more, you know. So, yeah, it's 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 it, there's no exact figure, but it, it's it's, um you know, it came it's come down from sort of. 20, 25 a year, down to a handful, and um, I mean this year we've we've probably moved to uh, to give you an example. And coronavirus, yes, I mean that obviously has had an impact. You know, rhinos during the lockdown, we you know everything's been shut down. Um, I'm assuming that's the question for that, but but coronavirus has had a, a, a huge impact on sort of the ability for both state and and private um, sort of conservation areas. To, to to conserve their, their their parks. I mean, there's obviously many different models of, of conserving wildlife, and and for us, uh, you know, tourism is is the main driving force. And and obviously, without tourism, uh, that uh, that model that revenue stream has been cut off. I mean, we fund um, a lot of our own uh, protection and conservation. We obviously receive a lot of donations from NGOs, and and uh, we do receive grants from the state. But most of the huge majority of our funding is from within, you know, um, from tourism. And so it's had a major impact and that's right throughout. I can speak on behalf of the whole of, you know, anyone that protects rhinos, uh, coronavirus has had a huge impact on, on that. And can I add to that um, on the impact of the pandemic? Because what we've done, and obviously I think we all have to roll with the punches because uh, that is exactly what's happened with um, you know, COVID-19. There is a cause and effect. And for anybody to think that um, it's been, a, you know, a wonderful haven out there for wildlife um, is uh, sadly mistaken. We have been investigating and talking to criminal defense and to rangers and to individuals on the ground right through Africa. And what we have discovered is that poaching has escalated. Uh, but escalated in an alarming way. And it's a lot of people taking advantage because governments furloughed uh, rangers. There's 40,000 rangers right through Africa. You, you know, if you think of half of them have been furloughed, um, it's easy for people to go in. And there you get that element that Derek was talking about, the greed element. But there is another element where people, Simon is talking about you no know, tourism, uh, and they don't have a job and they don't have an income. And so they're feeling desperate. So they're moving into, uh, you know, a lot of the communities that are bordering these parks and moving into them. And it's all about bushmeat trade. But what we are hearing and seeing on, on the ground right through Africa is that this bushmeat trade has escalated to the point that it's actually clearing out areas and they could become sterile. I mean, what we did is straight away look at what's going to protect all these 
pristine vulnerable areas and knowing that you know their rhinos right through all these areas is how do we protect them and obviously it's keeping ranges on the ground so how do we pay for those ranges on the ground that have all been furloughed so we do need to know that what we're also hearing is that some of the iconic species are still being poached like rhinos and elephants and it's been stockpiled it's either been buried or stockpiled and as soon as the borders are open they will move. So sadly, um, it's not all the case as it was in South Africa where rhino poaching went down through the, through the pandemic. Thank you for that, Beverly. I think that's really good insight. And it's just, I think what's happened over the pandemic is it's demonstrated huge vulnerability of conservation funding generally where there's a high dependence on tourism. And I think nobody could have ever foreseen, you know, the tourism taps being turned off completely and the, you know, the consequences of that. We have a question from Beth Hardy Yoga. Are the organizations represented here in support of removing horns to prevent poaching and why or why not? So Simon, you spoke to that a bit. I'm going to push that back to, to you and then Dave, perhaps for you as well. We obviously took a decision in 2016 to start dehorning and I must be honest, it wasn't an easy decision. We rely on, on on tourism as a um, you know as our sort of funding model to protect uh, to protect well also rhinos and but what we felt at the time was that if we didn't we would have been overrun. Dehorning has been sort of been play, taking place in in a number of areas even before um, 2016, but certainly looking back now five years down the line, I can honestly say that it's been a strategy that's worked for us. We've seen not just here, but in our area, poaching uh, numbers decrease uh, substantially. The the beauty with with dehorning is that um, you know the horns do grow back. So it's a it's very much a sort of a, um, you know an, uh, an intervention that um, you know if 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 poaching situation changes, you know we can let the, the horns grow back. And what we've seen is that you know it has very minimal impact on the animals themselves. I mean we. We've had um, almost every female reproduce or conceive and reproduce here at Pinda since dehorning started. So it's had almost no impact on the reproduction at all. So it, at the time, it was a very controversial decision. And, and I guess it, it could still be now, but, but we've decided that we'd rather have sort of rhinos alive than with, without horns, you know, finding a lot of dead rhinos um, with horns on. And, um, you know, we've managed to reduce the risk uh, substantially of the of the rhino yeah, through dehorning and and obviously that needs to be coupled with a with a strong awareness and education program not just to our guests but to our staff and the communities around us and so we we very much in support of of dehorning but obviously as soon as hopefully things if things change uh, and they they will one day we can let those horns grow back and um, let rhinos have horns again thank you simon dave any additional views on on the topic it, it was controversial at one point. Yeah, just a quick one. Um, I'm certainly not against it at all, and it certainly worked, as Simon has said. The one thing where it, 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 it has a negative effect sometimes on the larger populations where dehorning is just not a sustainable option. And um, I refer to places like Kruger National Park and, and the Shisluyong Pelosi Park, for instance. Even if you do strategically, um, rhino move a lot seasonally, et cetera, et cetera. So the dehorn rhino, not going to stay there and you get horned rhino coming in and it's all the risk versus reward kind of kind of thing so if you're surrounded by smaller reserves that have dehorned all the animals well you're going to get all the attention focused on you 
um, which certainly I think has played a, a role in our situation. I have also the other thing is you can't just rely on the dewarning as a deterrent. Um, you've got to keep all your other uh, anti-poaching uh, tactics in place. Um, I've watched one population decline, and they were completely dewarned, and they literally went to zero over five years. And it was tragic, but it was really just because anti-poaching just wasn't there in place. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. So again, that speaks to that whole village concept and building multiple layers and that there is no silver bullet. You know, there's no single solution that is going to, to keep a, a rhino alive. And um, we have a question from Nicola Orkin. How does Pinda work with the neighboring farms as a collective to get synergies in anti-poaching patrols? Simon, I guess that's yours as well. Yeah. <laughs> we work very closely with, with our neighbors. You know, we have quite a number of reserves around us that also have rhino, and so we meet re regularly. All of us are in communication with each other. We have very much shared strategies, um, you know, with regards to sort of working together as a collective uh, from awareness to sharing. Um, I mean, Jacques, Jacques will know he's WWF are big supporters of uh, a number of initiatives in our area, um, you know, funding shared aerial surveillance. Yeah. You know, we share the cost of that a canine unit as well. You know, so some some reserves are too small to have their own sort of initiatives like that, and so so the the initiative is shared amongst us. So, you know, and we share information as well. So, you know, if we get information, we obviously uh, share it with with others that we that we trust. And so, yeah, we work very closely together with with neighbouring reserves around us in a number of ways. Thank you, Simon. Um, I'm sure there's lots more questions and we'd love to take them all, but we are running out of time, I'm afraid. I'm going to be a bit cheeky and, and, and put one question to, to Isaac to close off with. Isaac, how do we get young guys and girls growing up in the villages around protected areas to want to become rangers and want to get involved in conservation? Andrew, I think um, one of the things that we have actually tried at Pinda, and uh, we saw some results at some point, was um, what we used to call conservation lessons. That is just exposing young, uh, young girls and young boys from the school-going age to conservation. We bring, we bring them into Game Reserve, uh, talk about um, the wildlife in general, the, 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 the advantages thereof and the role they can play. Just make sure that they actually part and parcel of it. That, that really just... Um, bring their their interest up you know in terms of uh, wanting to participate and some of them actually really wanting to um to select jobs that uh, are, are conservation related I, I think that that would be the best way to really try and, and conscientize the kids and, and and just make sure that they actually get interested because most of those kids uh, most of the kids you may be will be amazed that they are so close to the borders of the of the of the park but they hardly know what is actually going going on inside so uh, you can't protect what you don't know. So the best way of actually doing so is exposing the kids at a young age so that they, they grow up knowing why it is important to conserve uh, these um, iconic species. W wonderful, Isaac. Thank you so much. And thank you all. I think this has been a, a really energized discussion, lots of very different views, but all coming back to the point that it takes a village to save a rhino, multifaceted. Yeah, lots and lots of different layers, lots of different components, lots of different efforts. And yeah, we can only applaud all of your individual efforts. And, and thank you very much. And a, a big thank you again to, to and beyond for pulling together this um, incredible panel of dedicated and committed rhino conservationists. So thank you all very much for joining us. 
Uh, I'm sure there's still a lot of unanswered questions. It's a, it's, this really is a complex uh, challenge that we're facing. But I think what we heard today is, is not on our watch, is rhinos in, in, in Africa are not going to go extinct on our watch. And I think, you know, there's clearly no shortage of passion, dedication, and commitment within the conservation sector to, to save Africa's rhino. So on that note, thank you very much and, and a big thank you to and beyond again. Thank you for listening to our World Rhino Day special panel. If you would like to explore more conservation-related topics and pose your own questions to our experts, follow and Beyond Travel on Facebook or Instagram and look out for details of our next live discussion topic coming soon.